the very last words of that gospel are amazing words. It says, you are witnesses of these things. All of these readings that we hear are because people wrote them down as witnesses of what had happened during that time of the passion, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now, as I said a week ago, what's so important is that after people see the resurrection of Christ, they are so unbelievably convinced that most of them will, in fact, die for this message to hand it on to other people in their life. That's how convicted they were upon seeing what had happened at that time. They are witnesses. And we say, John, in that second letter, he's like, I write these things to you on your behalf so that you don't sin. So everybody is witnessing and testifying to what they know to be true in Jesus Christ and in his resurrection. And for those of you that have kind of witnessed something profound in your faith, it is, might be the very reason why you're sitting here in this church today. Because God has touched you personally in a specific way, and, it, and it's, it's still unbelievable to you. I can remember probably about three years ago, um, while I was kind of finishing up studies in Rome, I was with uh, Archbishop Sample, happened to have to go to a, a meeting in Rome with the bishops. And so while we were there, every year, the, the seminarians for the Archdiocese of Portland who are studying in Rome, we always go on like a diocesan pilgrimage. There's usually about five guys studying in Rome at any given time. And so while we were there, you know, and over the years, I, I'd gotten to go to some amazing places. San Giovanni Rotundo, where Padre Pio is, um, ours, where St. John, John Vianney is. And uh, this year we went to Lourdes. And on that particular trip, it really was an amazing trip. The funny thing about this is I thought about this yesterday while I was preaching. I almost forgot about this, but Archbishop Sample will never let me forget it the rest of my life, so I didn't think I'll ever forget it. Now, I'm not one of these people who misplaces things. Like, I always know where my keys are and my wallet and my phone. And some of you might be the opposite or know people that are, where you have to have like that little tile on your keys because you like, you never know where your keys are and you need your phone to find your keys, but then you first have to find your phone, that kind of thing. I, I'm not that person. Like, I know where everything is. So if I do misplace something, it makes me kind of crazy. So what had happened is one of the most painful and difficult parts of being a student in Rome is your sojourno, your, your student visa. Going to the sojourno office for the student visas is a huge pain in the butt. And so it's a very difficult situation. So what had happened is because there was a problem, I was at the visa office. And my passport was in the folder that I had taken to the visa office. So now we're going to fly to France, in which I need my, my passport for. So we're there, getting ready to like, you know, check in and get our ticket and everything like that. And I realized in the line, it just dawns on me instantly in that moment, I don't have my passport. I was like, oh no, I don't have my passport. And of course, and I'm with my archbishop. And I was just like, I can't believe I forgot my passport when I'm with the bishop. Oh, my goodness. And so I had to go back to the college. I had to get in a cab, go all the way back to the college, get my passport. And of course, the big pain of the situation was when I got there, the plane basically was taking, I mean, I'm there at the airport, but of course, the plane is taking off. I had to rebook another ticket and then get there a completely different way. And so I finally arrive at like 11.30 p.m. 
and Lords, thanks to the help of one of my brothers who's, who was there kind of texting me, now take this bus, now get on this bus, now do this, now do that. Oh, it was a big pain, so I'll never forget that. But now we get to the day of the great grace. So the next morning after that fiasco, you know, and I see the, the bishop in the morning and he reminds me of forgetting my passport. Then we all walk to the grotto where our, where St. Bernadette, where Our Lady appeared to him in this rock grotto. Some of you, I am sure, have been there before. And as we're approaching the grotto, this is in the middle of February, because that's when we have a break in between our exams. For some reason, in Europe and Italy, they have this painful idea of doing exams after the break, which I think is a terrible and awful idea. But that's what happens. We have our exams, and then we have a short break after those exams. And so it's freezing cold. Everything is dead. So we walk up to the grotto, and I'm thinking this in my mind. I was like, I smell roses. I was like, am I, am I crazy? I'm just thinking, like, is it just me? And so as we get closer, it's like the strongest smell of roses that I've ever smelled. So for those of you who have a devotion to Our Lady, know that Our Lady is associated with roses. In fact, even in that apparition, there were this is a yellow rose on the top of Our Lady's feet in that apparition that the that Saint Bernadette could see, and so also Our Lady of Guadalupe, you know, in Juan Diego's tilma are these roses. They're they're just always associated with Our Lady, and so I'm like I'm just going to say it out loud. I was like, does anybody else smell roses or am I crazy? And Archbishop's like, no, no, I smell it too. I smell it too. And everybody's like, yeah, it's it's just overwhelming. It's unbelievable. And then, of course, like the biggest clerical bunch of skeptics you've ever seen, we start smelling like everything. You know, like there's candles all over, and I'm like, is it a scented candle? I'm smelling like dead plants that have nothing growing on them. I was thinking, is this like Disney World, where they pump in the smell of like chocolate chip cookies and stuff so that you have more buy-in? But no, nothing. Like nothing smells. It was just that scent of roses was present around where our Blessed Mother appeared at the grotto. And it was amazing to me because I'd heard the stories, I'd read them, but I never really thought that that was actually going to happen to me. And it was just such an amazing experience that, of course, I'm able to witness to that, that it was such a profound thing that we witnessed that day in the middle of winter that I could relate that to all of you. And I know some of you have had those experiences where you were a witness and you are telling people about these things on their behalf. So some of you have probably heard this from me before, but one of the very most important things for each and every one of us in this church right now happens just prior to leading into this gospel. It's the breaking of the bread on the road to Emmaus. The reason that this is so unbelievably important is because of the way salvation history unfolds for us as Catholics. So one of the ways I like to start is that we have the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament. Inside of the Ark of the Covenant is the Ten Commandments, the staff of Aaron, who is a priest, and then also a container of manna called an ephah of manna. Man, I looked this up one time. That's basically about a Nalgene or a Hydra flask's worth of manna, like a liter of manna. That's what's inside of the ark. Then we know that salvation history, the unfolding of God's saving plan, is something that is gradually revealed. So the ark often points to something more important, or things in the past point to something more important to come. 
So what's the next type or prefigurement or more important thing to come? Our Blessed Mother herself as a living, breathing ark. Within the ark of her womb, she contains Christ himself. The Eucharist, the prefigurement of manna bread from heaven, the body of Christ is within her. Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the high priesthood that Aaron represented, and the fulfillment of the law of the covenant, the new law in himself. All of these things are contained within the ark of Mary's body, a living and breathing ark, not just these sort of relics of the past. And then that comes forward to this moment that we have right here, where Jesus, on Holy Thursday, celebrates the first Eucharist with his disciples. And then this moment is how every single one of us know God until he comes again in the second coming. Is in this moment, it is absolutely pivotal because Jesus will no longer be with us in the human speaking, walking, and talking way that the people of that time knew him. And we notice that as those two disciples are walking on the way with Jesus, it says, remember, they are kept from recognizing who he is until this one unbelievably profound moment. They said, he said the blessing over the bread. He broke the bread, and then their eyes were opened, and he vanished from their sight. This is how we all know the Lord today until he comes again. In the Eucharist that is celebrated on this altar, an altar that has a relic of another witness, our patroness, Saint Cecilia, a relic of her is inside of this altar, on an altar of sacrifice where that bread is made present. So from that day on Holy Thursday, the Catholic Church has never stopped celebrating this. Unbroken, all, think about all around the world. Some of you have family that live in different parts of the world. Everywhere there are masses being celebrated from that very beginning of that time where it was instituted on Holy Thursday until the time that we're here now. It's a profound moment because we don't get to see Jesus in his walking, talking human form. We see him in his substantial, real presence in bread and wine. I've mentioned this before. It, it, it's not, it starts as the bread and wine that is brought to us. And then it's substantially changed into his actual body and blood and soul and divinity. The reason that this is so unbelievably important is that if we don't believe in that, we need to ask ourselves another question. Do we really believe in an almighty God, an omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing God? This is the God we hear in one of our readings today, the author of life, the one who actually creates Everything creates matter itself, the very building blocks of building other things. It's the one person, the one, the one being itself that can actually make something substantially change, but yet remain in something that we could still receive and that could be absorbed into us. So although it still appears as bread and wine, 
and it's actually the body and blood of Christ so that it can be one with us. This is so important because from that moment, it's the biggest transitional point in the New Testament of how we will know Christ in the Eucharist. They only recognize him in that way. And then he vanishes. Just like for us, we only have that appearance of bread and wine. We don't have that appearance of Christ bodily. And so he moves on because he's going to ascend into heaven at that point. There's something that I want to share with all of you today. So this is for all clergy are bound to pray something called the Liturgy of the Hours, which is five different prayer. It doesn't take an entire hour, but it's five different points of prayer throughout your day. And some of you have this as a devotion and pray the Liturgy of the Hours. But we do that. We pray the Liturgy of the Hours, which is mostly composed of the Psalms, for all of you, for the whole church. That's one of the points of us praying that. These are some of the very same prayers of the Psalms that Jesus himself would have actually prayed when he is in prayer. So today in the Liturgy of the Hours, in the first office of readings, there are two long readings that we have usually. And this is one of them today from St. Justin Martyr, another early witness, a disciple to the disciples, if you will. He basically was, he wrote this about the year 155. So some of the apostles would have been the teachers to somebody like St. Justin Martyr. So we say the apostle to the apostles, so to speak. And so this is an unbelievably important piece of history that is written about Catholicism. I'm going to read it and explain it as I go, okay? So he writes this. Initially, Justin Martyr is a spy. So he's observing the church of the Christians in Rome. And he says, No one may share the Eucharist with us unless he believes that what we teach is true, unless he is washed in the regenerating waters of baptism. So he has to believe in the truth of the Eucharist. He has to be baptized. He has to be washed as in baptism for the remission of his sins. And unless he lives in accordance with the principles given us by Christ, now we remember, we hear that in our second reading, that to follow the commandments is to follow Christ. Those that don't follow the commandments are not in Christ. So he's reiterating that same thing. This is so important. We do not consume the Eucharistic bread and wine as if it were ordinary food and drink. For we have been taught that as Jesus Christ our Savior became a man of flesh and blood by the power of the word of God, so also the food that our flesh and blood assimilates for its nourishment becomes the flesh and blood of the incarnate Jesus by the power of his own words contained in the prayer of thanksgiving. The prayer of thanksgiving is the very Eucharistic prayers that we use here on this altar. Now, this is an important part for us that are here at this Mass today. The apostles, in their, recollect in their recollections, which are called Gospels, handed down to us when Jesus commanded them to do. They tell us that he took bread, gave thanks, and said, do this in memory of me. This is my body. In the same way he took the cup, he gave thanks and said, this is my blood. Remember, every Mass, you hear the instrument of the priest commemorate the very thing that Christ did. 
the Lord gave this command to them alone. Ever since then, we have constantly reminded one another of these things. That is what we are doing at Mass, every Mass, constantly reminding one another of these things. They, oh, I lost my place. Hold on, hold on. Okay, then it says, the rich among us help the poor, and we are always reunited, we are always united, all in one mass. For all that we receive, we praise the creator of the universe through his son, Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Spirit. On Sunday, we have a common assembly of all of our members, whether they live in the city or the outlying districts. The recollections of the apostles, the writings of the prophets are read as long as there is time. That's an important thing right there. So the writings of the Old Testament, the gospel, they're read if there's time, if there's time to. So the word of Christ has less importance in the early church than the body and blood of Christ because the readings are read if time is there. But it's an important part, remember, The Mass is the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. When the reader has finished, the the president, the priest, the presider of the assembly speaks to us, and he urges everyone to imitate the examples of virtue we have heard in the readings. What I am doing at this very moment, preaching the homily. Then we all stand up together and pray. On the conclusion of our prayer, the prayers of the faithful that we offer, Lord, hear our prayer. On conclusion of the prayer, bread and wine are brought forward. The president, the priest, offers prayers and gives thanks to the best of his ability. And the people give assent by saying, Amen. The Eucharist is distributed. Everyone present communicates and the deacon takes it to those who are absent something we still do to this day. We take communion to the sick. The wealthy, if they wish, may make a contribution, our collection, and they themselves decide the amount. The collection is placed in the custody of the president. It's given to the church, to Father Kerry and I, so that it can be spread out to where it needs to go, who uses it to help the orphans and widows and all who for any reason are in distress, whether because they are sick, in prison, or away from home. In a word, he takes care of all who are in need. We hold our common assembly on Sunday because it is the first day of the week, the day on which God put darkness and chaos to flight and created the world. And because on that same day, our Savior Jesus Christ rose from the dead. For he was crucified on Friday, and on Sunday he appeared to his apostles and disciples and taught them the things that we have passed on for your consideration. The Mass, all the parts of the Mass, everything that you experience at the Mass, written about and observed in the year 155. This is our faith. This is what's been passed on to us and we've been doing for all of these years. It's so important that we realize that we've been doing this from the beginning. Some people like to criticize the church and say, 
that these were ideas that the Catholics came up with in the Middle Ages. 155, the structure of the Mass looks exactly the same as it does today. This is an amazing gift that we have been given, and we are stewards of that gift. We are witnesses that will pass it on to the next generation. And so today, just like at every other Mass, we receive our Lord in the body and blood of Christ because we become living tabernacles. Living tabernacles. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, which is in us. We are what we receive. So just like that ark and that tabernacle of our Blessed Mother, we become walking, talking, breathing tabernacles that seek to become what we receive, Jesus Christ out in the world, his witnesses. People died for this message, and we pass it on to the rest of humanity. Until he comes again, we are fed by the body and blood of Christ. God bless you all.